The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, well, um, if you go ahead and turn over to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to read an extended section. I hope to get through it tonight. And um, starting at verse 12, Paul writes, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order... Christ the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Well, uh, what, a, what a passage. I mean, my goodness. So we, uh, we saw as we started this chapter that uh, the first unit is verses 1 through 11, and uh, Paul unfolds the gospel and uh, the the sine qua non, or the without which, with nothing of the resurrection. In other words, you have the gospel message that Paul presents, and then he presents the resurrection, the eyewitnesses accounts, and without the resurrection, there is no gospel. Okay? Without the bodily resurrection of Jesus, there is no gospel. And of course, the eyewitness accounts and even Paul's own testimony uh, attest to the validity of the resurrection. Then, uh, the section we're going to start tonight, Paul then defends the resurrection of believers. You have to remember that the Corinthian uh, complaint or objection was not that Christ hadn't been raised from the dead, but the Christians aren't going to be raised from the dead. And so Paul is defending the resurrection of believers, and he does it in three ways. If the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. That's 12 to 19. And then Christ has been raised, and believers will be raised, 20 to 28. And then he gives a number of pragmatic arguments in 29 to 34. And then he concludes the chapter with sort of an amazing section on uh, how are the dead raised, right? And his answer is going to be bodily. 
And so he's going to talk about the nature of the resurrection body, 35 to 49, and then 50 to 58, he gives the resurrection, the death of death, and the ethics that come from the resurrection. And it's, it's absolutely fascinating as you look at this chapter. By the way, when, when Paul says the dead, okay, um, the, the, the Greek expression is like dead ones, and is probably the idea of corpses, okay? Not just like the dead as a state of people that are dead, but corpses. Well, that ends up being uh, important because later he's going to talk about uh, soma, which is body, right? So think about the Corinthians and they're, they're um, dissing the body, for the sake of being spiritual. And what Paul's going to do is he's going to turn their spirituality on its head by saying that the resurrection body that you get will be spiritual. And what he means by that is not a spiritual body as opposed to a material body, but that the resurrection body that you get is in fact a spiritual one. In other words... Your future bodily resurrection is just as spiritual as your new birth. Okay. Now, that brings us to this wonderful um, section. And uh, it's, it's uh, obviously 12 to 19. This is a sustained argument. Uh, Gordon Fee says this is marvelously constructed, and it really is. Um, let me just let me just kind of throw this out here for you, because in in the text it becomes very obvious. You have a but if how, but if neither, but if then, for if neither, but if and then if. All right, and that actually is the uh, sum and substance of the way Paul develops the argument. And in fact, four times, Schreiner says in this paragraph, Paul forges an indissoluble connection between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers, arguing that if the believing dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And one cannot say that Christ is risen, but believers will not be For Christ's destiny is their destiny. They are bound up together. In a real sense, what Paul is doing is Paul is demonstrating that believers are so connected to Jesus, they are in such union with him that his bodily resurrection is what secures their future bodily resurrection. So verse 12 gives us the the real question, right? So he says, if Christ is preached that he was raised from the dead, how do some of you, some among you, say there is no resurrection of the dead? So very clearly, if Christ is preached that he was raised from the dead, well, is Christ preached that he was raised from the dead? And the answer is, of course, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, Paul has already emphatically said Christ has been raised from the dead. Verse 4, he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then, verse 11, notice this, whether then it was I or they, so we preach. What do we preach? Christ raised from the dead and so you believed. 
And so Paul is basically saying, so if, if we are preaching Christ has been raised from the dead and we preached that and you believed it, how is it that there's some among you in the Corinthian church that say there's no resurrection from the dead? This, by the way, is most certainly one of the um, divisions that exist that Paul talks about going all the way back to chapter 1. Notice it's just some among you, not all of the Corinthians um, uh, uh, probably believed that uh, this. But here's, here's the problem with the Corinthian church is that um, the divisions that were there were divisions of a party spirit. I'm of Paul, I'm of uh, uh, Cephas, uh, you know, I'm of Christ. Um, and there was a, a, an underlying uh, divisiveness in the body, but there also was a very carnal uh, toleration in the body. Toleration for sin and, I would uh, apparently, toleration for false teaching, false doctrine. And so Paul realizes that there's some, and they're saying how, uh, or the dead uh, are not going to be raised. And Paul says, how can you say that? How can you say that in light of the central role of Christ's resurrection in the gospel message, 15.4, in light of the eyewitness accounts, 4 through 8, of which I am one, and in light of your own faith, we preached, you believed, how in the world can some among you say there is no future resurrection for believers? It's as if Paul is absolutely beside himself. Now, by the way, in light of all of the Corinthian problems, right, all of the sexual immorality, taking each other to court, all of the things that we've already seen, um, getting drunk at the Lord's Supper, eating before everybody else gets there, and all of that, in a real sense, this church, which was an absolute mess, when you come right down to it, this is the worst problem in this church, the denial of the resurrection. And so, why would they deny it? Just, I'm not going to review that, but just, um, they probably denied it because of paganism. Paganism dismissed the value of the body. Paganism didn't believe in a resurrection of the body. And you probably had some Corinthians in the church that were thinking exactly like pagans. Well, guess what? Things don't change. Things don't change. It may not be a denial of the future bodily resurrection, but let's face it, there is a whole lot of worldliness that seeps into the church's thinking. They're not, they're not critical biblical thinkers, and instead they just imbibe the, uh, the atmosphere all around them. Okay? Do you think that that's happening today? It's happening today on a large scale where as Christians try to be loving and kind, they end up embracing what ends up being nothing more than pagan theories. I'm thinking in particular of Christians who end up embracing critical race theory all in the name of trying to love their neighbor. It's embracing a pagan worldview. God calls us to actually think biblically. 
God calls us to have a, a robust, biblically informed Christian worldview, to actually have a Christian theology that's rooted and grounded in the word of God. We are to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And our minds are to be subject to the word of God and to the lordship of Jesus. Clearly, there were many in the Corinthian church that did not follow that. And so now what Paul's going to say after, in a sense, this, this um, uh, expression of, of, of incredulity, how is it that some of you say, now he's going to go and list what, what we could call the fatal consequences if there is no resurrection, all right? So this is Paul's argument in this section. And what he's going to do is he sets up these arguments and you have if, then, if, therefore, if, and, and what he's going to do is each one of these arguments are just going to tumble right over into the next one, just like a bunch of dominoes all falling over, all right? So verse 13, and this is the crux of it. If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And so Paul's, um, Paul's clear inference is this. The resurrection of Christ and the future resurrection of believers are so inextricably bound together that you cannot separate them so that if you deny one, you deny the other. And so to deny that Christians are going to be raised someday from the dead is to actually deny that Christ has been raised from the dead. You see, it's actually not a a complicated argument at all. If the dead aren't raised, then guess what? Not even Jesus has been raised. And actually to, to deny the resurrection, to deny the resurrection of believers is to implicitly deny the gospel itself. Okay. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, you see the way he's building, so the next domino is going to fall. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith also is vain. So there's, there's actually going to be three implications in verses 14 and 15. If Christ has not been raised, then, first implication, our preaching is empty. And so, for Paul, did it cost something for Paul to go and preach the gospel? Did Paul make a sacrifice to go and to bring the gospel to the Gentiles? Did he make a sacrifice to travel and to take the gospel where Christ has not been known? And the answer is, of course. And you can see whether it's in 2 Corinthians 6 or 2 Corinthians 12, there is a litany of Paul's sufferings that all come upon him for one simple reason, and that is he preached the gospel. And Paul says, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, then our preaching, that is the content of our preaching, is vacated of all meaning. There's absolutely no sense in me even opening my mouth ever again as a gospel preacher if Christ has not been raised from the dead because the content of everything that we said is now completely empty. And then he says, and if that's true, your faith is empty. 
Now, the connection obviously goes back to verse 11. So we preach and so you believed. But notice this, our preaching is empty. And if you believed our preaching, then your faith is empty. Right? Now, Paul uses a, a, a word here, kenos, which, which literally could be um, to empty something of material. So like you could... You could um, pour out something and empty a vessel, that could be a use, or you could send somebody away empty-handed, right? The word is used like that. But oftentimes, it is used more figuratively to mean devoid of intellectual, moral, or spiritual value, which would be the case here. Paul's going to use it again in verse 58, have the idea of without purpose or result, or we could just say in vain. And so Paul says, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, I've been preaching for nothing, and you believed with an empty, meaningless faith. Scary prospect, right? How much hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? The answer is everything hinges on Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. So Paul says, first implication, our preaching is in vain. Second implication, your faith is empty. And then here's the third implication, verse 15. And we have been found also false witnesses of God because we've testified according to God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, since therefore the dead are not raised. You have to appreciate the wall, the way Paul puts his arguments at times, right? And so here's, here's, the, uh, here's the third implication. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, Paul says, you know what we've done? We've gone around and we actually have gone around as false witnesses who have misrepresented God. Because what we've said is God raised Jesus from the dead. And if he didn't do that, then actually we're liars and we're expressing false testimony and we are false witnesses. We have misrepresented God claiming something to be true, which is not. And so what was the message of the apostles in the book of Acts? You could summarize it so easily. Early chapters goes like this. <laughs> it's that simple, right? This is the heart of apostolic preaching in the book of Acts. Exactly. You killed Jesus. God raised him from the dead, right? And that's, that's the simple message. And all Paul is saying is, look, if your pagan idea of there's no resurrection is true, then... We are false witnesses. Do you know what, you know what verse 15 does? Is verse 15 is a not so subtle rebuke on uh, the way that people view truth today. You do see what Paul's saying in verse 15. And that is, if you're right, we're not. Nobody wants to say that today. Nobody wants to say somebody's wrong. In fact, the sentiment of today goes something like this. Well, maybe not everyone is right, but at least nobody's wrong. 
This is the way people think, right? And in fact, everybody wants to... um, Everybody wants to be really polite, except, of course, when it comes to Christians. But everybody wants to be really polite, and nobody is, is wrong. And Paul simply says this, if these people at Corinth are right, we are wrong. We're false witnesses. We're telling lies. Okay? Well, would, would to God that we could, that we could penetrate our culture with the idea that there is truth and there is error and there is right and there is wrong, right? This, this, this whole nobody's wrong thing is absolutely destroying us. Okay. Now, that brings Paul to the next section of his, of his argument, verses 16 and 17, And uh, notice again, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins. And so here, of course, is the crux of the argument. Uh, If the dead are not raised, neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is, and he uses a different word here. I think it's probably just a synonym with with, um, empty that he uses in verse 14. But again, if Christ has not been raised... um, When you said you believed in Jesus and got baptized, that was absolutely useless. Absolutely useless. And then Paul then stretches this out more from his previous statement by saying, and you are still in your sins. So, in other words, if Jesus' body is still in the tomb, you are still in your sins. Why? Because if Jesus is still in the tomb, then the cross did not accomplish what he said it would accomplish. In fact, it is, it's the empty tomb itself, which is the divine stamp of approval of what Jesus did on the cross for us. And so if the resurrection is not true, then the cross actually accomplished absolutely nothing. What is the cross without the resurrection? The cross is a, is a tragic story without the resurrection. The cross is is a meaningless martyrdom without the resurrection. I remember growing up, you know, we would go to uh, obviously go to mass every week, and and in in most uh, Catholic churches, there's a huge uh, crucifix, and of course, a crucifix is not just a cross. A crucifix is a cross with Jesus affixed to it. I used to look at that, and I used to think, how sad. Poor Jesus. Well, you know what? If there's no resurrection, then poor Jesus. But if the tomb is empty, then the lamb triumphs. And so Paul, Paul is really clear. He's like, listen, if Jesus has not been brought out of the tomb, by the way, this is our text in Romans 4 this coming 
Sunday, you're still, you're still under condemnation if Jesus is in the tomb. Wow. Then Paul goes on, he presses it even more, and he says, then, verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. So fallen asleep, you understand, is a, a Christian euphemism for, uh, for dying. Okay? Um, it's interesting, the euphemism of falling asleep is a Christian, distinct Christian euphemism simply because when you go to sleep, what happens? You wake up. And so falling asleep was an apt metaphor for Christian death because of resurrection. And so Paul sort of plays a little bit with them here. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ, well, they've perished. They, those that actually believed in Jesus and then died, they didn't enter into the Lord's presence. If Christ is still in the tomb, guess what? They've actually perished. Why would they perish? Because their sins aren't forgiven if Christ is still in the tomb. You see the way all of this works together. Paul's, Paul's building a, a, an argument that's all interconnected, and so they've perished. That loved one of yours that you took such great comfort in that they're face-to-face with the Lord? Well, guess what? If Jesus is still in the tomb, they're not in heaven. Verse 19, if in this life we have hoped in Christ only, we should be pitied more than all men. Here's, here's in a sense, his, his final um, argument in this section. And in a sense, what Paul is saying is, is, is listen, if... If our only hope in Christ pertains only to this life, then people should look at us and pity us because we are most to be pitied. Wow. That, that's, that's, that's quite a statement. And by the way, the statement itself does a number of things uh, relevant to us in a number of ways. And, and, and that is what Paul does is, is by that argument, he, he alludes to the fact that, that trusting in Christ is not just simply a matter of having a little bit of hope in this life. If Christ hasn't been raised from the dead then the only hope you have is in this life. And Paul's basically saying, and that's just nonsense. That is, that is pitiable. It's laughable. Right? Why? Well, I mean, contrary to all the prosperity preachers and all that, that, that look at this present life as, as you know, uh, to use an overused phrase, your best life now, right? Paul, you know, you know, you could, do a different translation here. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, this is your best life now. 
And people should feel really sorry for us. Why? Because we're called to live a life of self-denial and we're called to follow a savior who's actually his corpse is in the tomb and, um, you know, and, and we're willing to make sacrifices and to live for, live for a dead savior. To bank our, to bank our future on an empty tomb that's not really empty, people should just feel sorry for us. There's something else that this text does for us. And that is, it undermines this idea that living the Christian life is just in and of itself intrinsically a beautiful way to live. You know what I mean by that? So Schreiner says this, he says, if there's no future hope, believers are to be pitied. They've put their faith and hope in what is a lie, and Paul considers that to be pitiable. Paul does not salute the nobility and sacrifice of Christians, even if their faith is not true. Instead, if Christ was not crucified and has not risen for their sins, believers have wasted their lives believing fables. So Don Carson, this is so good, and it, it makes the point. Don Carson writes, he says, several years ago, a reporter put a crucial question to the then Anglican Archbishop of Perth, at the time, the Anglican primate of Australia. That is the highest office in the Anglican church in a given country. The reporter asked, If we discovered the tomb of Jesus and could somehow prove that the remains in the tomb were Jesus' remains, what would that do to your faith? Legitimate question, right? The archbishop replied that it wouldn't do anything to his faith because Jesus Christ has risen in his heart. The apostle understands, the Carson goes on, the apostle understands the issue with much more straightforward clarity. If Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. In other words, part of the validation of faith is the truthfulness of faith's object. In this case, Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus has not risen, they can believe it until the cows come home, but it is still a futile belief that makes them look silly, and they are to be pitied more than all men. There is no point getting angry with the former Archbishop of Perth. He and his opinions on this matter are painfully pitiful. In other words, Paul is saying, if Jesus Christ has not been bodily raised from the dead... There is nothing intrinsically beautiful about your life of sacrifice and your suffering. There is nothing noble about spending and being spent for the sake of a gospel which is a lie. Let's... Let's make this really, really personal. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, 
than all of the work that Charlie and Vic and Jason and I do makes us a laughing stock. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, every single client that walks into life choices, it's a waste of time. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, those missionaries who set sail against danger and expressed all kinds of courage were a joke. That's Paul's point. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, then moms raising your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and pouring your life into them and homeschooling them and nurturing them is a waste of your time. If Christ has not been raised from the dead. You get the point? Everything hinges on the empty tomb. And so Paul has considered hypothetically, what if the resurrection is not true? If the resurrection is not true, then nothing matters. You do understand that. The only thing that gives that gives hope and meaning and significance for this life, but especially the life to come, is the fact that Jesus Christ not only died for our sins, but was raised bodily from the dead. You believe that? Without the resurrection, nothing matters. And so, here's Paul, verse 20. I have a little like a little like chapter division here that says the order of resurrection right before verse 20. You do understand those chapter divisions simply are are, um, are not only uninspired, they're uninspiring. Why? Because I want to read it like this, with no break. If we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who are asleep. And so for Paul, absolutely no doubt. For Paul, the resurrection wasn't a good probability. The resurrection was a certainty. Christ has, in fact, truly been raised from the dead. And the affirmation that we have in the first part of verse 20 is that bold apostolic proclamation, notice here, of historical fact and of redemptive historical reality. By the way, in, in terms of the resurrection of Jesus, both of those things go together. So on the one hand, the resurrection of Jesus is indeed a certifiable historical fact. 
That's the whole point of verses four through eight. Eyewitnesses, most of whom you can still talk to, and then I saw him. And so there is the historicity of the resurrection. But understand, our faith is not simply in the historical event itself. Our faith is in that historical event and the redemptive historical realities that came out of that event, which change everything. That's what the resurrection does. It changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most significant, important event in all of human history. And Paul says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. How does he describe Christ's resurrection? Notice so clearly the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Any farmers here? Yeah, how sad. Yeah. <laughs> first fruits. So, in the Old Testament, the Feast of First Fruits, which was also known as Pentecost, was the feast that God gave to his people to celebrate so that at harvest time, they brought in the first fruits. The first fruits were, of course, offered to the Lord, right? Remember Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, offer to the Lord from your first fruits. But the first fruits were significant because the first fruits were a guarantee or a down payment of more to come. In other words, the first fruits were a guarantee of a later harvest. And so the way that Paul views the resurrection of Jesus is that the resurrection of Jesus is the first fruits for those who have fallen asleep. In other words, in, in one sense, what Paul is saying by, by making this first fruit metaphor is that Christ's destiny of resurrection is now our destiny. Christ's resurrection was the first installment of the harvest, which was a guarantee that the rest of the harvest would come. In other words, Paul, Paul cannot, and this is, I, I think we probably fall into uh, this trap of not seeing this connection, but Paul could not think of the resurrection of Christ without also thinking of the resurrection of believers. Why? Because we're in union with him. And to be in union with him is if he was raised, we'll be raised. God gave us the down payment. God gave us the guarantee. God gave us the first fruits. And so as Christ arose bodily and victoriously from the tomb, it is the guarantee that one of these days, even though we fall asleep in Jesus, we will be raised from the dead. Christ's resurrection is not only the ground, but it's the guarantee of our resurrection. And by the way, your salvation is not complete until you've been raised from the dead. You do know that, right? Our ultimate goal is not simply to um, uh, die and and 
just have our soul go to heaven. That, that's true. That's what happens. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Uh, the, the New Testament doesn't teach the idea of soul sleep. Uh, we, we go, uh, our soul, our spirit goes into the presence of the Lord. But the fact is, is that our redemption, our salvation is not complete until the Lord returns and raises us up from the dead and we receive a new, resurrected, glorified body. By the way... You do understand, and we'll get more into this as we go through the chapter, but you understand that that the resurrection of the body is a is a reflection on the goodness of creation. Why not just save us and the soul goes to heaven? Because God made the body as good. And God will redeem all that he made, which is good. And so a theology of bodily resurrection for believers is nothing less than a theology of creation. By the way, is it, do you not find it interesting that when God sends his son into this world, he doesn't send him as an angel, he sends him as a human being. Why? Putting God's imprimatur on the goodness of creation, the goodness of a human body, the goodness of a human soul. And then he raises him from the dead. And so God's committed to his creation. God's not going to throw away anything. Except the devil. It's all right by me. God's not going to throw away anything. God is the ultimate environmentalist. He's going to recycle this world in a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. He doesn't throw away anything. I throw away everything. Sometimes I do it just to make Ariel mad. I'll take a plastic bottle and say, hey, look at this, and throw it right in the garbage. Verses 21 and 22. For since by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And so now what Paul's going to do, so remember I just said the uh, resurrection of the body is a creation issue. So what does Paul now do? Paul now deals with the first Adam and the second Adam. And so through a man, who would that be? Who would that be? Adam, right? So through so the, 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 the text is actually somewhat abrupt. Through a man, death. Okay? In other words, death, which comes through what? Comes through sin. Okay? Um, that's what Adam brought us. And then Paul says, also through a man, resurrection of the dead. Christ brings life because he overcame sin and death. By the way, he has to overcome both because of the way sin and death are connected. Sin and death, by the way, are inextricable. And so he has to overcome sin and death, and that's how he brings resurrection. Then Paul, in very famous statements, says, just as in Adam all die. By the way, we're not very far away from this in Romans 5, 12 to 21, all right? 
as in Adam all die. Wow. So, so here's, <laughs> you know, all this, all this talk of race, right? Well, here's, here's the biblical perspective. There's, there's one race and we're all in Adam and in Adam, everybody dies. No matter what your skin tone, everybody dies. In Adam, Adam brings what? Sin and misery. In other words, there's actually a, a, a fundamental unity to the human race. And that fundamental hum, uh, uh, unity is first of all predicated upon the image of God, but then even more, tra- uh, that, that's wonderful, but then tragically, human beings in Adam die. They need the forgiveness of sins. And as long as you are in union with your first parent, you will die. Think of it this way. Paul, Paul looks at all of human history. So how do you look at human history? Right? right? What's your view of human history? You have like primeval history. Do you think of it geologically? The uh, proto-crustacean age. I know that's probably not even a real word, but it sounded good. Okay. Was it close? Was it close? Okay. Okay. So you can look at history in all different kinds of ways, right? Here's the way Paul looked at history. Adam and Christ. That's the way he looked at human history. And everybody in Adam, who's everybody in Adam? Everybody. There's only one person that was not born in Adam. Jesus Christ. And then you have in Christ... And who's in Christ? Well, these are not two co-equal groups. In other words, they're not uh, the same group. So everybody's in this group, but not everybody is in this group. But notice what Paul says. Also, all in Christ will be made alive. Oh, it says all. Well, all's always uh, defined by context. And we'll see in verse 23 uh, who he's talking about. But here is, here's this beautiful thing. In Adam, everybody dies. In Christ, I'll be made alive. In other words, Jesus Christ as the last Adam does what? Brings about the great reversal of the tragic, the tragedy of the first Adam. That's what Jesus does is he brings about this this great reversal. So the first Adam brings sin. The last Adam brings justification from sin. The first Adam brings death. The last Adam brings life and resurrection from the dead. And so here you have this this incredible, um, um, uh, these two great epochs, right? And and on one hand, um, you have chronology, which we've seen before, for instance, in Galatians 3 and other places. But most importantly, you have what we could call the, the personal experience of being in Adam or being in Christ. Christ brings life. 
Now, verse 23, sorry on your notes for the word taxonomy. I should just say order, the resurrection order. Notice verse 23, but each in his own order. What's he talking about? He's talking about those who are going to be made alive. All in Christ are made alive, but each in its own order. Okay. By the way, this, this word order is a military technical term, meaning the arrangement of troops. Okay. So in other words, Paul says, everybody in Christ is going to be made alive, but they're made alive in their own order. Okay, And so what does he mean by that? Well, he means that there is uh, an order that God has established. We'll talk about that in a second. And so who are all those who are made alive? Well, it's those who belong to Christ. Made alive, resurrection. When will we be made alive? What does it say? At his coming. At his parousia, at his appearing. So here's this, here's, uh, for Paul, it goes like this. Christ was raised from the dead, ground and guarantee of your resurrection. When is your resurrection going to happen? Your resurrection is going to happen when Christ returns a second time. The second advent, the parousia, is when the resurrection of the body happens. And so um, here's, here's the order, by the way. Um, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then, you see the order, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the, uh, with the Lord. And so here's, here's the order. Jesus, and then those who died in Jesus, and then those who are alive at his coming. That's the order. And so the resurrection of the body happens when Christ returns. I sure hope it's soon. I sure hope it's soon. So, the New Testament presents the resurrection of Jesus as an indisputable historical fact. And as we consider the resurrection of Jesus, we need to realize that our faith is grounded in the word of God and the historicity of the event. Okay. By the way, in that order, how do you know the historicity of the event? Because it's in the word of God. Why is that an important thing? Your faith, your faith is not built on five philosophical pillars. Okay? Like, like Buddhism. Um, by the way, Buddha could have never needed even to exist, and you could still have Buddhism. Why? Because it's a philosophy of life built on these five pillars, right? Technically, you could even have Islam and never have Muhammad exist. 
because Islam is, is not Muhammad. Of course, Muhammad's the prophet, but God could have used any prophet. Guess what? If Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, Christianity simply is not true. Here's the glorious thing. Your faith is rooted and grounded on the truth, reliability, veracity of the word of God and the historicity of the empty tomb. Why is that important? Because once I got saved when I was 13, we used to sing this all the time. You ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart. Barf. Seriously, that is not a good song in a sense. Is it true Christ lives in your heart? And the answer is he dwells in your heart by faith. But how do you know Christ lives? You know Christ lives because the word of God tells you, not by some existential experience of having Jesus in your heart. By the way, you do understand that that kind of of sappy, sentimental um, uh, I'll stop there with descriptions, but sappy, sentimental kind of approach to, to the gospel is a subjectivity that ultimately undermines the gospel. You ever wake up and not feel like Jesus lives in your heart? Or are you, are you so spiritual that every morning you just wake up and you go, I can't believe it. Christ dwells in my heart by faith, by his spirit. It is wonderful. Really, every day with Jesus is better than the day before. And I, I feel it, right? I don't know anybody like that. Those aren't drugs. How do I know he lives? The word of God tells me so. And it is a historical event that's true whether I feel like it or not. Now, you know, some people struggle with the resurrection. And I just want to say there are some really helpful books on the resurrection, um, on the uh, evidence and the historicity of the resurrection. There are a number of excellent books. Um, I'm not an N.T. Wright fan, but the best book on the resurrection is N.T. Wright's The Resurrection of the Son of God. 700 pages. Absolutely gold. Uh, William Lane Craig, The Sun Rises, uh, Habermas. uh, There's a number of really important books on the resurrection But here's the thing that Paul's getting at is that in the final analysis, we are so connected to Christ that we can't talk about his resurrection without also talking about ours. What that means for us is that Christ, who is the last Adam, who through death and resurrection 
restores our life in the Spirit and guarantees our resurrection to come when he comes again. That changes everything. That gives meaning and significance to every person Charlie or Vic or Jason or I sit down with. That gives meaning and significance to every single client that walks through those doors. That gives meaning and significance to every diaper you change and every homeschool lesson you try to beat into that little uh, person's head. The resurrection changes everything. And so we sing, and I couldn't help but to put the words in there for you. For my life he bled and died, Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied, he will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast. Till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this marvelous passage. Father, we pray for those that, that don't believe. They've heard it preached. I pray now that you would empower them by your spirit to believe. Father, we thank you that our faith is not in vain. We thank you that we're not in our sins. We thank you, Father, that, that we're not to be pitied because we have a future and a hope. And so, Father, we pray that you would anchor our, our hearts and our minds in the truth of the resurrection. Father, we thank you for this glorious passage. We pray that you would use it in our lives in, in ways that we could not even imagine for the glory of your risen Son. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.